Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. Psychiatry is different to other branches of medicine. We needed a bit of glamour. Gen Z are also having less sex than previous generations. I was so proud of her that I bought her a cute tennis outfit for Christmas. What if the robot completely replaces me and takes over the farm? For a while, you are off balance. Nothing is yours, except what is essential. The secrets that we hand on, the things that aren't in books. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusfridger, editor of Prospect Magazine. When I arrived at Prospect, I wanted the new magazine to be about people as well as ideas. But when I thought about adding a live section to the back pages, it wasn't quite the right fit. I soon realised that we didn't need a live section, we needed a live section, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain, by a new family of regular Prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in May. Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence was celebrating the soothing power of pets, while former England cricket captain Mike Brealey was reading a play by Shumit Dutta on Beckett, Pinter and Cricket. Both actor and writer Sheila Hancock and Anglican priest Alice Goodman were feeling philosophical, confronting their fears of death. This month, Jason Thomas Vanillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, laments the absence of adequate investment in Britain's crumbling bus network while Farmer Tom welcomes some exciting new arrivals to his farm. For this month's Sporting Life, writer, broadcaster and newly initiated cricket player Emma John takes to the field herself for the first time. But let's begin with Gen Zia. I always never know whether it's Gen Zia or Gen Zeta, but Gen Zia this month. Serena Smith, whose column this month, introduces us to an entirely new word, heteropessimism. Earlier this year, a man called West Elm Caleb went viral on TikTok. The New York-based 25-year-old furniture designer had dated a bunch of women at around the same time, showered them with affection, and then promptly ghosted them. Women on TikTok began making videos about their bad experiences with a guy called Caleb who worked for West Elm. Eventually, the videos piled up and they connected the dots. The result? A seething online dogpile. I'm usually the last person to jump to the defence of a man who has mistreated a woman, but as this drama unfolded, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sorry for Caleb. He had been a dick, for sure, but the rage directed towards him seemed disproportionate to his crimes. He had been flattened into a cartoon villain, the living embodiment of everything that is wrong with heterosexual men. Though I disagree with the scale of the vitriol aimed at Caleb, who, at the end of the day, is an actual person, I also understand the strength of the feeling towards him. For straight women, heterosexuality is often dissatisfying. Swiping through dating apps looking for that diamond in the rough can feel like a Sisyphean pursuit. And once you are in a committed relationship, things don't necessarily get better. On one end of the spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, women do more unpaid household work than men. On the other end, rates of domestic violence remain depressingly high. It's also telling that studies suggest unmarried, childless women are the happiest subgroup in the population. With all this in mind, 
it's somewhat cheering to witness women embrace the single positivity movement. In recent years, we've seen Emma Watson describe herself as self-partnered and journalist Francesca Spector coin a new term, alonement, to describe celebrating and valuing the time you spend alone. Feminist influencer Florence Given's best-selling book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, implored young women to know their worth and dump their mediocre boyfriends. Gen Z are also having less sex than previous generations, indicative of this new shift towards consciously opting out of dating. But sometimes I worry that we are becoming a little too uncompromising. It's worth noting that Gen Z is also the loneliest living generation. A quick glance at social media illustrates the pervasiveness of what writer Asa Saracen called heteropessimism, cynical displays of hopelessness about the heterosexual experience. For example, on online forums like Reddit, women are encouraged to dump their partners for the most innocuous offences, like having female friends or leaving the toilet seat up once. On TikTok, users reel off totally inconsequential things that give them the ick, Unshakable, sudden, and often irrational sense of revulsion towards a partner, triggered by something as inoffensive as seeing them tie their shoelaces. In Women Don't Owe You Pretty, Given uses cake as a metaphor for love. You must live your life as if no one is ever going to make you a cake. Don't sit around waiting for someone to give you the cake. Bake it yourself, she says. This is how you refuse to settle for less than you deserve. You ensure that you could have everything you possibly need, supplied to and from yourself. Given has helped countless young women to let go of the need for male validation. But I disagree with her sentiments here. I don't have everything I possibly need, supplied to and from myself. I like to do some things on my own, reading and cooking, for example. But the best bit is still asking my friends what they think about Sally Rooney's new book, or seeing my boyfriend appreciate my signature pasta dish. Women should not settle or stay in abusive or harmful relationships. But as Saracen argues in On Heteropessimism, we shouldn't lose sight of the real issue. Misogyny. If heterosexuality becomes shorthand for misogyny, the proper object of critique falls from view, she writes. To be permanently, preemptively disappointed in heterosexuality is to refuse the possibility of changing straight culture for the better. Dating is about growing in tandem with another person, after all. Your partner won't ever be perfect, just as you won't ever be perfect either. All we can do is keep trying and learning and muddling through. As Serena highlights the need for compromise and patience in a romantic relationship, Actor Sheila Hancock cherishes the consistency and stability of her lifelong relationship with the Queen. There has been one constant figure in my nigh on 90 years of life, the Queen. Politicians come and go, but she has always been there. When I was a child, the royal family was central to our working-class culture. Our relationship with them was shaped by the radio and cinema newsreels, as well as magazines and newspaper stories. Whenever the king made a speech, 
we gathered round our wireless and held our communal breath as he struggled to control his stutter. My mum made my best frocks, copied from those worn by the little princesses Elizabeth and Margaret Rose. Then, when war ravaged our lives, the princesses sent us messages. In 1940, the 14-year-old Princess Elizabeth told the 7-year-old Sheila that when peace comes, remember it will be up to us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. Sitting in an Anderson air raid shelter with bombs and guns blazing outside, I vowed that I would try. Pictures of her mother, the Queen, dressed up to the nines, visiting bombed streets, laughing defiantly with the locals, made it less frightening. On her 21st birthday, Princess Elizabeth promised, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it is long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we belong. Yes, well, that last bit has unravelled somewhat, but at the time it seemed right. When the devastatingly handsome Prince Philip came on the scene, the fairy tale was complete. Their marriage in 1947 was an explosion of beautiful frocks and elegant carriages at a time when we were polaxed in the grey aftermath of a terrible, ugly war. We didn't care what it cost. Lots of people sent off their clothes coupons to make sure that the princess could have an exquisite Norman Hartnell gown. And she looked lovely and he looked dashing and 200 million people listened to it on the radio and rejoiced that they were happy because happiness was thin on the ground then. We were trying to readjust our families to returning mentally and physically wounded servicemen and women. And the growing realisation of the massive job ahead of repairing the profound damage wrought by conflict. We needed a bit of glamour. In 1953, we got to feel we knew the Princess Elizabeth better when we hired one of the new television sets and gathered round it to actually watch this beautiful young woman accepting the weight of the crown. The coming of television wrought a big change in our relationship with the Queen. I remember being open-mouthed at the image of her sitting side-saddle, stock-still, on a massive horse, watching the trooping of the colour. I decided to learn to ride, coached by a terrifying Major Trumbull, who despaired of my absolute inability to make the horse move. I made the mistake of believing that if I let the vast beast munch a bit of grass, then it would do what I told it. But though it totally ignored my command to trot on, it certainly did gallop when the Major whacked it on the buttocks and it raced me under low-hanging branches and down precipitous slopes. I think the horses are nasty animals, but the Queen loves them and they do just what she wants them to even sitting sideways. I now know that you have to use your heels to give them orders. You must be in control. It seems to me that this is the Queen's secret weapon, being in control. She seldom shows emotion. 
More, most of the time, she is enigmatically stoic. Nowadays, when the Kardashians and their light show every detail of their personal lives, I, after 89 years, have no idea what the Queen is really like. After a morning of smiling and shaking people's hands, does she go to her room and howl when she considers the latest debacle of her wayward family? Does she think, as she or her son on her behalf reads out the latest government plans in the Queen's speech, this is bullshit, I've heard it all before for 70 years and you won't bloody well do any of it. No, no, she keeps a straight face and does her duty. As a person who anguishes over the inequalities in my country, I should be a Republican. But at my age, I'm allowed to be inconsistent and muddled. Things have to change, but I'm grateful for her contribution to my life. The rituals, the marking of occasion with solemnity, being in a jubilant crowd watching a procession, her frumpy outfits, her daft corgis, and her very occasional and therefore very special radiant smile. The spirit of celebration is Anglican peace and it's good and looks forward to ordination season where priests in training at her parish earn their stripes. When you are just beginning your work, the people who inspire you tend to be the old timers who have seen, done and endured much and still believe in what they're doing enough to hand it on. As the years pass, you find inspiration in people just beginning the work that you've been doing for years. I'm inspired every day by William George Stonehouse, who is buried in the south aisle of my church and whose white marble monument you may read on the wall. His ambition was to present the gospel of Christ, which he adorned in life and found his support in death. William Stonehouse was 20 years old, the only son of a cotton merchant from Salford. He attended Manchester Grammar School, matriculated at St. John's College, Cambridge, and died before the end of his first year, in 1835. He was our first, preparing, he was our first student preparing for ordination. They're called ordinance, that we can name. My reverie in front of the Stonehouse plaque was interrupted today by a text message from one of our current ordinance on placement, who had submitted his final essay and was on his way to London to be fitted for a cassock. Remembering your advice about the pockets, he added. Having learned the hard way, I advise our ordinance to make sure that the pockets in their cassocks are made of strong material and double-stitched. They'll be putting a lot in them over the years. Keys, prayer books, phones, pens, boxes of matches, cough sweets, radio microphones. Oh, the secrets that we hand on. The things that aren't in books. I need to update the map in the vestry that is brought out at the end of June around the feast of St. Peter and St. Paul, one of the two traditional times for ordinations in the Church of England. All around the edges are the names of the new deacons and priests who've been here on placement since 2011, and coloured yarn and pins connect them to their title parishes, the places they were ordained to. 
22 of them over 11 years. In the US, where I studied for my Master's in Divinity, the professional degree for clergy across most of the churches in North America, it takes at least three years to prepare for ordination. I studied the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the history of Christianity, the philosophy of religion, moral theology, systematics, homiletics, and pastoral care and counseling. I have my old ring-bound notebooks. I have my old ring-bound notebooks stacked in the wardrobe, and it comforts me to know they're there if ever I forget what was said in that seminar on revelation, faith, and the nature of tradition. You learn the history of liturgy and how and why the church's ceremonies took the shapes they have. There's field education, the North American name for the attachments and placements we have here. Finally, before your general ordination examination, you go off to a hospital for an intensive program of chaplaincy training combined with group therapy, the dreaded clinical pastoral education. You learn how to listen to what's not being said as much as to what is. You learn what your own baggage is and how to check it. Some people concentrate on one part or another of the curriculum, but everyone has the basics, and for everyone, whether they're 20 or 60, it takes three years. Over here it's quite different, alarmingly so. In the Church of England, the training you get depends, first of all, on your age. Ordinance over 40 tend to be funneled into a shorter program. The three-year course is primarily for younger ordinance and those who have been talent-spotted for rapid preferment. A three-year full-time residential program is for the lucky few. In a new development, one theological college and at least one diocese are trialling a scheme for ordinance to move in a single year from the selection interviews to the bishops laying on of hands and anointing that makes them priests. This is aimed at what are referred to as mature Christians. Apparently they're people who have been active in their church for a long time and have retired with a really good final salary scheme pension, or are independently wealthy. The Church of England has decided that the learned clergy that the Elizabethans pushed for are a limiting factor to the survival of the institution. It might work out all right in the end. Maybe, like William Stonehouse, aged 20, they'll adorn the gospel of Christ with their lives. Except for this. The religious education of children in the Church of England has been negligible for generations, and even mature Christians come up for training cheerfully unfamiliar with most of the Bible and all of the creeds. Some leave that way. Having strong pockets in their cassocks will only take them so far. Alice is not the only one reflecting on her career progression, as Rebecca Lawrence considers whether psychiatry was really the right profession for her. Psychiatry is not like other medical specialties. I'm a psychiatrist, so I would say that, but it is viewed as distinct. For many doctors, it is a Marmite specialty. You love it or you hate it. If your feelings are lukewarm, it probably isn't for you. When I was at medical school many years ago, a small number of students had their hearts set on psychiatry. 
I had been one of them, but then I experienced a ward placement that drained whatever limited confidence I had, so I put the idea aside. When people ask me now why I wanted to do psychiatry back then, I usually come up with something vague about how interesting I thought it was. If I'm honest with myself, the reality may have been that I was unhappy at medical school. I felt overshadowed by my ambitious peers, and although I passed my exams, I did not excel. I was stuck at a very young age on a route that dismayed me, and psychiatry seemed exciting and alluring. It was about people and their thoughts and words rather than science, criticism and brutal hierarchies. So for me, it may have been an opt-out rather than an opt-in. But my goal to become a psychiatrist was always there in the background, and although I initially took an alternative route by training to become a GP, I feared that I would regret not pursuing it. Psychiatrists have to be doctors, unlike psychologists or therapists, but the specialty requires different skills compared with other areas of medicine. Looking back, it is hard to know exactly what its appeal was to certain medical students like me. Some may have seen themselves in a patched tweed jacket, life less frenetic than a surgeon's. Others may have been passionately interested in psychoanalysis and Freud, or alternatively, fascinated by the hidden curiosities of the brain. Maybe some had encountered psychiatry firsthand, either personally or by supporting relatives in treatment. Some may have already worked in some capacity in mental health. I had none of the, these experiences. My only time in psychiatry as a student had been awful, yet my dream persisted. When I became ill with severe depression at the end of my GP training and underwent the reality of psychiatry as a patient, I thought that my dream was dead. But, against all the odds, it revived. Now, as a consultant psychiatrist, I look back bemused at how I got here. The only constant was wanting to pursue psychiatry, and I'm still not sure why. Psychiatric patients, and even psychiatrists, were stigmatised when I was a student. This has changed, but not as much as it should have done. It was seen as a soft specialty, one that attracted oddballs and outsiders. Gifted psychiatrists might be asked, with incredulity, why they chose to waste their talents. Many of our medical colleagues barely view us as real doctors. Yet just this week I was asked to attend to an unwell passenger on a plane, something that has never happened before. I opened my mouth to say, but I'm just a psychiatrist then thought that if they had someone else, they would have asked them. I did my bit, fortunately minimal. I sat down, trembling, and told myself, I'm a psychiatrist and a doctor, I'm not just anything. However, it can be hard to remain passionate when the striving that comes with pursuing a goal dissipates on reaching it. I like my job, but it's perhaps not what I once thought it would be. I do talk with patients and I try very hard to listen, but the deprivation, trauma and suffering that we see can be overwhelming. Psychiatry too has changed and training now is more similar to that for other specialties, full of competencies to achieve and portfolios to complete. Resources are generally scarce and many patients are seen only in busy clinics with limited opportunity to get to know them. It's not the dream I once had, 
but the patients remain the same. Psychiatry is different to other branches of medicine. You need to study it, but that's not enough to succeed. You need something more. You need to read literature, see films, watch people and engage with humanity. While Rebecca emphasises the social elements of her work, Jason Thomas Vanillier fears that the crippling expense of bus travel is leading to widespread isolation. Why do I travel? So that I can come back and see the place I came from with new eyes, and so that the people still there see me differently when I return. I've learnt that coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. For people seeking asylum in a foreign land, travelling is a complicated experience. It can feel brutal, depressing and anxiety-provoking. But you can also experience a sense of wonder about where you are going. It forces you to trust strangers and to lose sight of all that is familiar and comforting. For a while, you are off balance. Nothing is yours, except what is essential. Sleep, dreams, see, the sky. Everything points towards the life you aspire to, or what you imagine of it. In my first two years in the UK, I found travelling in London intimidating, but also exhilarating, adventurous and engaging. But access to public transport is not equally distributed across the UK. In Doncaster, the practical question of getting from A to B can be fraught. Over the past few years, I've watched the number of public transport services decrease, limiting the social gatherings that are at the core of local life for the elderly and the young alike. A 2020 review of South Yorkshire buses found the frequency of buses to be poor in many parts of the region, and 60% of people surveyed were either dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with the reliability of the services. Public transport in London is so reasonable. £1.65 for unlimited bus journey within an hour, with all parts of the city well connected, encouraging you to socialise. However, in Doncaster and Leeds, standard bus prices are between £2.40 to £2.60, and travelling within South Yorkshire for the day costs £5. Whether it is between Rotherham, Barnsley, Doncaster or Sheffield, there are so many different types of tickets for different lines that it's difficult to work out which is best value for money. And in South Yorkshire, the prices are more affordable than in other parts of the country. A day ticket in some areas of the Northeast can cost upwards of £7. Some local authorities 
are trying their best to keep their towns, cities and boroughs connected. But of course, funding is an issue. Staff shortages and strikes cause problems. For my, for my asylum claim, I was previously required to report to a home office centre in Sheffield once a fortnight. Now, I must do so monthly. Sometimes, delayed buses made me late for appointments or unable to attend, which could lead to a sanction or penalty. And although you can call the Home Office and explain the issue, it's not your fault. It will still be used against you. When you are seeking asylum, the barriers of language, culture and stigma must be overcome to enjoy travel. Depression and anxiety can be an anchor, tethering you to the spot. Going away will encourage you to open up to others and most importantly, let you know you are not alone. I remember planning and going on day trips or short breaks every couple of weeks to different places in Yorkshire. But with the reduction of the bus schedules, I've gone from enjoying fortnightly adventures to only being able to take monthly trips. Short weekend breaks are so therapeutic. But finding these little bargains is not easy. One has to remain vigilant. Durham, Norwich, Dorset, Edinburgh, Powys, Annick are just a few places I've had the pleasure of going to. Being prepared before travelling is a must, especially if it's by coach, which I use more often than trains when travelling outside of my local authority. Travelling is an important mechanism in reducing social isolation and increasing connectivity with all communities. We all deserve fair access to public transport. Currently, the underfunding of the bus network makes it extremely difficult not only for me and others seeking asylum here in the UK, but for the British people too. It's disconnecting us from one another, and I can't help but wonder if it plays a part in the alarming increase in mental health issues. While Jason finds adventure in taking short breaks across the country, both Emma John and her sister have picked up new sporting hobbies. For most of her life, my sister has been a sporting refusenik. She's one of that rare breed who can ignore a World Cup in its entirety. Even if England make it to the knockout stages, she feels no need to pretend an interest in the outcome, maintaining an admirable imperviousness to cultural peer pressure and mass media hype alike. I can appreciate this as I have kept up the same indifference to most pop music of what should have been my era. My mind doesn't have room to care about Dennis Taylor and Taylor Swift. Anyway, the only sporting occasion my sister does make time for is Wimbledon. 
I suspect she's in good company. The tournament takes over the primetime terrestrial programming every evening for two weeks and remains a part of our national conversation in a way that cricket and rugby, two more of our so-called national sports, have long since forfeited. Just as you don't have to know about ballroom dancing to have strong opinions about the performances on Strictly, you don't need to be able to tell Slice from Topspin to find yourself getting passionate about Dan Evans's chances or Emma Raducanu's journey. Last year, however, my sister surprised us all by announcing that she had translated her love of watching Last year, however, my sister surprised us all by announcing that she had translated her love of watching tennis into actually playing it. For context, the last time she was involved in any form of competitive sport was a quarter of a century ago, when a lacrosse teacher persuaded her to lend her unskilled defence to the school's under-15 B team. It wasn't her athleticism that the teacher was hoping to co-opt, so much as her popularity with the other girls. The team went on to lose most weeks, but always in a wonderfully cheerful manner. Still, here she was, taking her first ever tennis lesson at the age of 40. Much research has been done about what causes young women to give up on recreational sport when they leave school, and a range of factors have been identified, from issues of body image to old school coaching traditions. But nothing surely has kept more women away from sport than that simple age-old message that it wasn't for them that physicality, competition and sweating were male activities. Only two decades ago, the idea of accommodating women in sport could still cause eye rolls from otherwise well-meaning and progressive folk. There was no notion of feminising the space that sport occupied. If you'd suggested then that what football needed was more women in the stands and on the pitch, football would have told you that it was getting along quite nicely without them, thanks very much. Was it a sudden enlightenment about gender equality that kick-started the change in attitude? No, it was the desire of a newly professionalised and endlessly voracious industry to maximise its revenues. As the buffers in the boardrooms were replaced with media-savvy marketeers, the accepted wisdom changed. For the first time, women had potential, even if it was just as audience numbers. It's rare that I find myself cheering such nakedly cynical capitalism, but I can't deny the improvement it has brought in the lives of the women I care about and the sisterhood as a whole. Friends who have spent grim years at the gym, pushing their bodies on treadmills that never felt like anything but torture equipment, have found their way back to activities they always enjoyed, like netball or badminton. Women who have watched their daughters play sports they were never even allowed to try, like football or rugby, are taking up the opportunity themselves. I don't think it's any coincidence that the only sport my sister has ever enjoyed watching is the only one that regularly elevated women when we were growing up. And I don't think the fact that she's now making time and childcare plans to spend an hour or two a week at the local courts is unrelated to the growing coverage of women's sport, the promotion of family-friendly spectator events and the This Girl Can campaigns. As for me, I was so proud of her that I bought her a cute tennis outfit for Christmas, then went out and joined my local cricket club. This summer, after 30 years of watching and writing about cricket, I'll finally play it for the first time. Finally, Farmer Tom 
looks forward to welcoming some very special arrivals to his farm. In May this year, I signed an exciting deal with the small robot company, and we hope to invite Robot Tom to our farm this autumn. I walk our fields for perhaps an hour a day at the most. Robot Tom will patrol them up to 24 hours a day. I can identify a handful of common weeds and plant diseases. My automaton assistant has access to the full complement of human learning and can process data in milliseconds. I can drive our tractors and use machinery that sprays fertilizer or plant medicines in an area as small as three meters wide. My robotic companion betters me in this again. He can communicate with and bring in another robot called Dick, who will be ready for rollout in two years to select individual weeds and zap them with an electric current, killing them down to the root without harming other plants or insects in the area. This may sound a bit sci-fi. What if the robot completely replaces me and takes over the farm? But I think that the move towards robotics can help combine two trends, the growing use of technology in agriculture with a new commitment to nature-friendly farming. The deployment of robots represents the latest in decades of improvements in our farming knowledge and machinery since the turn of the century. Precision farming was the catchphrase of choice in the early 2010s, with satellite-guided tractors moving along paths with accuracy to the centimetre. These tractors could sow seed and apply fertiliser or pesticides in specific areas of the field, reducing input costs, increasing efficiency and maximising yield. This was all very good, if a little sterile, a cerebral system of farming using physics and chemistry and computing. In the past few years, we've reconnected with the heart of farming, becoming closet biologists and obsessing about improving our degraded soils. We've seen a surge in phrases such as conservation agriculture in the farming press, which describes a system of reducing soil disturbance, raising diverse crops and planting in between harvests to protect soils. More recently, there's been talk of regenerative agriculture, which builds on these principles and also uses livestock grazing and manures further to improve soil health. What Robot Tom and Dick will offer is the science of per-plant farming. And it won't just make food production more efficient, it will be great for the environment as well. One of my favourite stories is about a group of farmers who were consulted during the development of the robots and told that they could eradicate all weeds from their fields. The farmers replied, do you have to kill all the weeds? The answer is no. In fact, this technology could allow non-competing plants to continue to grow alongside our crops, benefiting the soil and perhaps even further improving yields while eliminating only the most pernicious weeds. This is fantastic for the environment, largely removing the need for herbicides and fungicides by 95% in the latter case. This space-age technology combines the high-yielding ambition of modern agriculture with the delicate touch of traditional and organic farming. I'm incredibly excited to be part of this. Britain led the world in the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th century, and we can now claim to be taking a lead in food production and environmental protection in the early 21st. A farming good news story, finally. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in July and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday.